Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I've returned to the New Books Network. This is a joint production of the History and Native American Studies channels. I'm here today with Professor Lisa Blee. She is obviously Associate Professor of History at Wake Forest University. I'm also here today with Jean O'Brien. She is the Distinguished McKnight University Professor of History at the University of Minnesota. Earlier this year, they published a joint study, Monumental Mobility, the Memory Work of Massasoit, out again earlier this year by the University of North Carolina Press. Can you uh, discuss the uh, choice of the cover, the choice of the cover? Sure. So the, the cover is this beautiful black and white photograph of Massasoit, the statue, and um, it's standing on a, a wood pallet, and there's clay kind of around his feet. And this is a we think a striking image of Massasoit kind of in process, right? The, the sculptor Cyrus Stalin, um, I assume has just finished um, working on what looks like the pipe, the, <laughs> the most recently um, sculpted piece. And, um, and you see that, well, he's on this pallet ready to move as well. So we thought that it, um, it's first a, a beautiful striking image of the, the kind of the, the details of the statue, um, as well as the fact that this is a, a statue that moves and it's in process. So you introduced the book by arguing that Massasoit's aesthetic qualities, its dual national and localized meanings, quoting you, and its dynamic shifts between public and private space reveal the complexities of monumental mobility. What prompted both of you to study the monumental mobility of Massasoit across many kinds of memory work? Well, this book actually begins with a chance encounter. Uh, I was attending a conference in Kansas City, Missouri, oh, many years ago. And I'm walking to the conference and lo and behold, I stumbled upon this statue of Massasoit, which I knew more properly stands in Plymouth, Massachusetts, because of what I do. I do early uh, New England uh, studies and American Indian studies rooted in New England. So I knew that that statue was misplaced. And I, so I filed away that, that thought just in the back of my mind for something to take up later on. And that later on came in conjunction with working with Lisa. And uh, Lisa started the research for why this statue was standing in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, the the materials for this archival research sat in my office for a while, and, and then I needed to do a conference paper for, for the American Society for Ethnic History, and I thought, oh, I'll do something on that statue. And diving into the material was just fascinating. Uh, it, it came to be there quite uh, through quite a, a complicated story of mobility, as it turns out, and it, it translated into an article that we published called What's a Monument to Massasoit Doing in Kansas City? And literally what we meant by what is it doing? What is the memory work that the statue is doing in Kansas City? Why is that monument there? This uncovered a story of really interesting uh, 
basically fraud in the fine arts market that centered at uh, Brigham Young University. So we just followed this story and, and we started thinking about why are these monuments in the places that they are? What are the meanings behind these monuments? And given that there's a particular meaning that's attached to that monument in, in its place in Plymouth, what happens to the meaning when the monuments move to places where, in fact, Massasoit doesn't really belong? So we got interested in what happens to the message that's intended when they move. We, and we realized after we wrote this article that we really weren't done with the story. One of the things that happened in the process of the research is it wasn't just archival. Uh, we used the internet. So this is how we found the location of the monument in Salt Lake City, Utah, Provo, Utah. We found the Cyrus Dolan Museum in Arlington, Massachusetts, and we found Massasuit rep, uh, reproductions and replicas all over eBay. So we became quite fascinated in this whole story, and it was it became kind of a kind of a who done it, uh, and it ended up being a very long term collaborative project that was just a lot of fun for the two of us. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we kind of workshop this a lot. Um, we talked to um, our colleagues. And uh, also we went to conferences and we presented some of the materials that we were finding. And the questions that we got from the audience members uh, were, well, we just, we couldn't answer them, right? Um, what was the motivation behind uh, the, um, the casting? Um, what work was the statue doing in different locations? What does it mean when it moves to different places? Um, there were just a lot of questions that uh, we needed to pursue. And so that's how it kind of, uh, kept going from the, the article into a longer book. So who was Osamiquan and how is he remembered by uh, Pakanukit and Wampanoag peoples? And what about New England and United States, uh, Dennis, in commemorations, particularly for Thanksgiving? So this is, of course, a complicated story that becomes sort of simplified as is something that happens when monuments are erected. They're intended to convey meaning, right? So let's start with Osamiquan. Osamiquan was a very important leader in southeastern New England in of the Poconoket, particularly in the Wampanoag people. And Massasoit actually is the word for leader in the Wampanoag uh, language. So this gets conflated in the monument, in the memorial. And just to talk a little bit about what the, the monument itself is intended to do, it gets attached to what we argue national origin stories of the United States. So it has to do with encounters. It has to do specifically with the encounters between the English Puritans, the pilgrims who come to Plymouth in 1620, and the native people, the Wampanoag people, uh, there. It's a long and very complicated story, but it gets dramatically simplified through the origin stories that attach to the monument and the narratives and meanings that are meant to be evoked by the monument itself. So quite specifically in terms of that simplification, what ends up happening with who comes to be called Massasoit or Osimikwan is that he's made famous for negotiating in, in, in from the English perspective, the first peace treaty with the English. And he's also, he signifies the first Thanksgiving, which of course is the quintessential of American celebrations and commemorations and holidays. So what's the reality behind this? Well, the reality is that he was a leader of the Poconucca people and that the, the Wampanoag are basically at this point in time, about 59 villages that stretch across Southeastern New England and into Rhode Island. And from their perspective, from the perspective of Wampanoag people, what he signifies is, and what this history really was, was not a peace treaty with the English, but actually a mutual defense agreement 
with a, the newcomers that come at this point and had been coming for a long time, actually. And the Thanksgiving was really a one-time event and it wasn't what people think it was. In fact, this was not a celebration of the harvest, which Indians were invited to to have with the English. But instead, it's a one-time event, a one-off, as we say, where uh, the Massasoit, Osimiquan, and 90 men come to the village of, of Plymouth because they hear gunfire and they're concerned about the martial intent of the English people there. And what ends up happening is they celebrate a meal together and it happened once it was not to be recurred again. So that's sort of the reality from, from the native perspective. Uh, just a little bit about the decision to use Osamiquan to talk about this historical figure. That of course is the Wampanoag word for the, the the man, the leader, and it means yellow feather. And we decided to use this orthography in the book to really to honor the Wampanoag language reclamation project that's been underway for a long time under the leadership of Jesse Littledoe in, in Massachusetts. So that was really important to us. So just to, to just answer the second part of the question, um, what does he mean to uh, to Wampanoag people himself, his, he's he's mixed in memory for them. Uh, he, what for some people he unleashed something really awful that happened afterwards, right? Uh, invasion, genocide, dispossession, and so forth. And so people think about him in connection with those events. Some people think, well, he, he was also in a very very difficult spot, right? What was he going to do? There's these newcomers. And, you know, what to think about that situation. Didn't know what was going to happen afterwards, what was coming. Uh, so, but most importantly, what we want to emphasize is this, this idea that he was the leader, that he was the Massasoit. And one of the things to point out is that that political role has never ceased to exist for the Wampanoag people. To this day, there is a Massasoit that leads the Wampanoag people as a political role. And this, for us, emphasizes the fact that Wampanoag people are still here. If you can, please briefly trace the circumstances of sculptor uh, Cyrus Dallin's commission to sculpt what would become the Massasoit uh, statue on Coles Hill in Plymouth. Addressing past attempts perhaps to install the monument, the establishment of the improved Order of Redmen, and the roles of the Massasoit Memorial Association as well as the Pilgrim Society of Plymouth. Well, the sculptor Cyrus Dolan is a fascinating figure. He was an up-and-coming sculptor and artist. And starting about the 1890s, he started winning awards for his Indian sculptor sculptures. And um, he had garnered really an international reputation. Um, but he was unique among other sculptors because he was born in Utah. He was from the West. Although classically trained in Boston and in Paris, um, he he claimed to have some of the kind of um, primitive natural aesthetic that he learned from um, growing up in Utah in close counters, I suppose, with, um, with his native neighbors. So Cyrus Dolan had a, a little special something um, as, a, as a sculptor in the 1890s and the early um, decades of the 1900s. His specialty was really native statuary. And so when the improved order of Redmen came upon the idea of, of commissioning a statue to Massasoit to install in Plymouth in time for the 1921 tercentenary, they turned to Cyrus Dolan because of his reputation. And um, the 
I guess briefly, the Improved Order of Redmen is um, a, a fraternal organization that had um, was really at the height of its membership at this time in the first decades of the 20th century. And this is a fraternal organization of white men, and it was a patriotic organization, and they kind of modeled their uh, their organization on their idea of native polities. So they were organized as tribes and they had chiefs, um, et cetera. And so they believed that um, there was this correlation between kind of the, the noble native or na- noble Indian and democracy, right? So they're trying to emulate that in their organization. And so they landed on this memorial to Massasoit as kind of the epitome of a patriotic monument. They wanted to um, take part in the tercentenary. This was going to be a celebration of the 300 years, um, the establishment of the colony, but also um, increasingly it was sold as the the foundation of the nation, right? The 300 year anniversary of the creation of, of America. And so they hoped that having a statue installed in Plymouth for this celebration would bring more attention to the improved order of Redmen, their organization, and help to establish their uh, their reputation right, as a, a patriotic organization. There had been some previous attempts to create some memorials to Massasoit, and actually um, I, they, were, they were more on the kind of local level, um, different towns sort of claimed uh, claimed Massasoit as uh, uh, as his uh, the site of his village um, for example but the improved order of redmen's story here was to really create a national monument to use Massasoit to tell the national story and um, that story would then be centered in Plymouth um, the Pilgrim Society of Plymouth was also interested in promoting Plymouth as um, well, their pilgrim history, but also as the site of um, national origins. And so they actually gave the land that they owned, Coles Hill, um, for the installation of the statue. And so we find now that Massasoit, the statue, is in this um, this high hill overlooking Plymouth Bay and Plymouth Rock at really the, um, the most visually, um, well, stunning location along the waterfront. In his sculptures, what was the, quoting you, complex message that Dolan's statues conveyed, again quoting you, about the place of Indianness in the memorial and public art movement, and American redemption more broadly? Also, if you can, what were the roles of viewers when they engaged with the purported redemptive qualities of primitivism? Well, Silas Dolan was a proponent of what he believed to be the didactic function of public art. So he wanted to create statues that would teach viewers civic lessons when they looked upon them. And when it came to memorials, Dahlin wished to promote an appreciation for art and aesthetic sensibilities. Um, this was not, um, not really so popular among um, memorialists in uh, at least the United States at the turn of the century, 20th century. Well, most sculptors in this period, the late 19th century and early 20th century, focused on white generals, soldiers, and politicians for their subjects. Dolan pointedly chose figures of Native American men. So what were the civic lessons and aesthetic qualities that Dolan ascribed to Indian male bodies, we wondered? Well, he told his students, and he taught an art school in Boston, 
He told his students and art critics that Indian men could convey a patriotic lesson in nobility and peacefulness in the face of, of adversity. And we see this in Dalin's so-called Indian cycle, which is a series of four figures of, of nameless Plains Indian men. Um, and this cycle, these four statues told a story of doomed but kind of principled resistance in the face of overwhelming strength of American civilization. And so Massasoit likewise kind of celebrated the, the leader's commitment to peace and friendship with English colonists, no matter what that sacrifice required. So that was this uh, the didactic principle. And Dolan also believed that male Indian bodies in particular were a model of manliness. And manliness is, a, of course, a concept with different definitions over time. But in this period, for Dolan, um, when he observed Indian men, he saw bodies that were shaped by a way of life and aesthetic sensibilities, what people uh, would call savagery and primitivity then. And at the turn of the 20th century, there was this concern that civilization or over-civilization threatened masculinity in white men. So people were, men were, um, were sitting at desks, not moving, not doing physical labor all day or going inside, which was uh, kind of the, the domestic realm previously. So there was this kind of uh, fear that white men were becoming over-civilized and losing their masculinity. And that men, white men needed a certain amount of contact with nature and physical labor to kind of stave off the, um, this degeneration and to be good civilized citizens. And the assumption at that time was that Indians could never quite access civilization, but their figures or their stat statues of their figures, right, could remind white viewers that a certain amount of appreciation for physical labor and for a connection to labor physical labor could help them to foster a, a lively manliness and become sort of idyllic patriotic citizens. So the place of Indianness is really complex because it cannot be said to be, you know, wholly negative or wholly positive. Don believed that he was celebrating certain qualities um, such as a love of peace and aesthetics drawn from a connection to the natural world. And that appreciation would also make viewers better people right, by appreciating those things as well. And these were not depictions of Indians as like bloodthirsty savages, right, which were also not hard to find at the turn of the century. But while it, they seemed to be a celebration, these Indian figures were also used to mute and allied colonialism by telling the story of willing Indian sacrifice of their land in the name of peace. So even in the Indian cycle, we see that colonialism itself could be seen as an inevitable force in America and one that Native people came to accept. So this is a story of colonialism um, that is then used for didactic purposes to mold modern, civilized, patriotic white citizens. So that's what we see as the um, kind of the complex work that Indianness kind of conveys through Dolan's statues. What were Dolan's motivations and intentions for the final cast of Massasoit? And what role was the statue ultimately cast for? In addition, if you can also answer this question, how did the Utah bronze reproduction subsequent recastings engage with, engage with notions of authenticity as well as commodification while, quoting you, alienated from place and time, making the process of appropriation at the heart of the colonial project? 
Well, Dolan had a number of motivations and um, hoped to accomplish a number of goals with the Massasoit statue. He wanted to honor the leader because he believed Osimiquin to be an extraordinary diplomat who promoted peace in a, a volatile situation, um, which to Dolan, it reminded him of of his home state, right? Um, some aspects of 19th century American settlement in Utah and the role of native leaders there, particularly Washaki. But Dolan was also very concerned with historical accuracy. Um, he, he sent um, drafts of his, of his statue cast to historians to get their feedback, right? He, he was concerned about getting it right. He read the surviving English accounts describing Osimiquin and um, he he put in details that he thought some of them were imaginative, but that he thought were historically accurate um, from the single feather in his hair, all the way down to the moccasin design. And his first model of Massasoit even included a a bit of a a belly, a soft center Mm -hmm. and these long leggings, which would be appropriate for a man in his mid fifties in a Massachusetts winter. So he thought about these details a great bit, but the final cast of Massasoit um, as you can see from the cover, it includes a, a very muscular bare chest and legs, which reflected Dolan's interest in the, the nude male Indian body um, as the height of you know, beauty and nobility without being over-civilized. And finally, I think Dolan was concerned with the installation of the statue right, and making sure that he could tell a cohesive story with it. Uh, we see this throughout Dolan's work, whether um, it's installed in uh, Chicago, Utah, um, or Plymouth, right? The way it's installed, what it's installed upon, right? Um, this all is supposed to tell that story this di- with a didactic didactic purpose. So Dolan hoped to convey the notion that Osimikon was noble because he saw the complexity of the situation in the 17th century and then made the hard choice to pursue peace because it might be best to serve his people or it might best serve his people, right? Not necessarily the pilgrims. So while Dolan was concerned with historical and cultural accuracy, and he did want an installation that honored Osimiquin's leadership, these ambitions, these motivations would not necessarily translate in the memorial, we found. So first of all, the statue was installed on Coles Hill, thanks to the, the land donation, right? And this is overlooking the bay in Plymouth Rock. And journalists interpreted this installation this particular location as an attempt to recreate in the viewer's imagination, the moment when Osimiquin first sighted the pilgrims entering the bay. So this is a fictitious, but very compelling story of first contact, but it really erases the, the actual political context of the time and place. And it takes away from the, the deeper appreciation of the choices Osimiquin made for his people in, in the moment of, uh, you know, in the 17th century. And the statue's installation, which is surrounded by memorials to English colonists, really cast Massasoit into this pilgrim-centered story of national origins, which we'll um, talk more about later. So removed from his own town, his own culture, his own kind of political situation, meant that Osimiquin's likeness on Coles Hill served to tell just a chapter in the story of pilgrim survival and America's foundations. So what we see here is an appropriation of the Massasoit's image to tell a story of the nation's peaceful foundations and therefore hiding the reality of violence and dispossession at the heart of the colonial project. So, and once Massasoit was reproduced, 
and recast and installed in many different locations to tell different stories. Its historical context mattered, well, its historical context in Massachusetts mattered less, and the issue of appropriation became more pronounced. Um, so just briefly in Utah, uh, the statue was installed in the, the rotunda in 1922. It was a gift from Dahlin to his, his home state. And the other statues, however, were, were reproductions for the commercial art market. And with these, we found that the sale of these Massasoit reproductions um, really, for us, drew this stark connection between capitalism and colonial dispossession. So Massasoit, the statue, helps Americans to form this kind of innocent and innocuous reframing of the founding principles of taking from others and profiting. This is kind of a a through line that we found in the sale of of the reproductions. Um, And something that we talked about um, as we continued our research, right, as our research unfolded was the the layers of appropriation (laughs) that we found, right? Dolan's um, use of an image to convey his own story, um, the way that art critics then um, reframed his intention and created a new story, um, the improved order of red men uh, also kind of recast the statue in a, um, in a new story. And when it became commodified, right, we just continued to see this, um, this sort of principle of, of taking from others and profiting as maybe an American, an American value. On that note, how did Plymouth statue orientation, uh, the 1921 unveiling ceremony, including uh, indigenous staging of the first uh, bronze uh, Massasoit and 1922 coverage of brotherhood and friendship during the dedication plaque ceremony, all advance a pilgrim centered national narrative. Also, how did Dylan's aim for a, a Wasaki statue in the same Utah Capitol Rotunda um, as a, where a, a second Massasoit um, was placed or installed. How did this sustain and reconfigure the narrative? Well, this is, this is at the heart of everything. We, this is one of the things that fuels the whole story that we seek to tell here. And I would just add, um, Lisa has covered uh, quite a bit of this in her previous answer. One, one thing to just elaborate on a little bit is that it was the donation that that Dolan made after the 1921 unveiling ceremony of the cast of the statue to the Massasoit that fueled the reproductions that we then uh, follow in our book, which is the whodunit part of the story and and what fuels the monumental mobility questions that we then seek to answer in this book. So the orientation, and oh, one other thing to say is uh, we were really fortunate that the University of North Carolina Press allowed us 50 uh, illustrations in the book. So it's richly illustrated that was really important to us because of the various locations and what we interpreted to be the, the meaning of those uh, those installations in these various places. So we one one or many uh, of the uh, illustrations shows this uh, the statue overlooking Plymouth Harbor and the mythic Plymouth Rock uh, near the site of the supposed first Thanksgiving, and as Lisa said, the statuary that's dedicated to the quote unquote founders of, uh, of Plymouth. So this was intended, as she said, by Dolan and the, the red man to be a welcoming kind of figure. Uh, and it's asserted as this is the origins of the nation. This is a celebration of American origins. So the unveiling itself, we found to be very interesting. And we follow the unveilings and dedication ceremonies of the statue in its various locations to the degree that we were able to do 
It dramatizes this pilgrim-centered national narrative. One of the things that this monument is meant to do in other monuments and other monumental practices is to freeze this time in this place, to like take this moment and etch it in people's memory. And in this case, what it's meant to convey is peaceful encounter. He cradles the peace pipe that you see in the, on the cover and in the other illustrations, it's meant to convey that the Massasoit welcomed the pilgrims, and he's the he is in fact in the plaque the great protector of the pilgrims, uh, and it's it's said that the red men are, are expressing their gratitude to the Massasoit for all of these historical uh, events that they want to convey. So as Lisa just mentioned, this glosses over the actual history, of course, of, of first encounter. The first encounter itself took three months to occur rather than happening th- this way that Massasoit is greeting the pilgrims as they arrive. So that's glossing over a very complicated history. It's also glossing over that it's not a peaceful embrace. embrace. In fact, it doesn't account and it cannot account for a longer history of disease from the 16 teens that decimated the populations of this area, of the enslavement of people like Tisquantum and 26 other men and boys that happened in 1614 that helped to secure Indian distrust, actually, in this region and in others. So that that narrative's not here in the statute. It's not meant to be here. It's meant to be covered over, really. So there's no room for Indian perspectives. And actually, in the unveiling ceremonies itself, it, there's no room for these perspectives Either they man- they managed to secure an Osamiquan descendant, Charlotte Mitchell, to participate in the unveiling uh, ceremonies, although she did not, as far as we've been able to determine, uh, she wasn't allowed to speak. She's falsely asserted as the last descendant of Osamiquan. That's not true at all, and this helps actually cement this idea of Indian extinction that is so dear to uh, New Englanders in this era and before and since. So she's there, but she's meant to really put a stamp of approval on the whole uh, order of business here. Uh, she's surrounded by people, though, who are in Indian costumes as well, and they are all the improved order of Red Man participants who, sh- who share the stage with her in the unveiling. So what happens is this whole set of speeches, ceremonies, songs, the Star Spangled Banner that are about celebrating U.S. patriotism and sanctifying this as a place that signifies the origins of the American nation. Uh, we also uh, were able to determine that she later shared with people that she was ashamed that she'd actually participated in these events. And uh, she was also uh, known to have asserted that she thought that the Massasoit, that Osamiquan, had made a huge mistake in his role in uh, in his dealings with the English, so that, that not resisting English colonialism. So I would just add that, you know, the inclusion of Indians to bolster these kinds of narratives was not at all unusual at the time. Uh, before or since in New England, it was kind of a stock in trade, but it also masks their own on the ground battles for their lands and their rights, which started from the beginning and continued through this period of time, which we look at a little bit in our book and continue to this day, I would say. How did the controversy over the removal of the Utah Massasoit from the Capitol Rotunda, as well as its eventual reinstallation in the South Lawn, generate indigenous conceptions of friendship as emerging from LDS faith? And further, how did the ceremonial promotion of civic pride and philanthropy, supposedly embodied in the Missouri Massasoit, in turn generate criticism of the memory of friendship? I'd like to um, kind of return briefly to um, Dolan's Dolan's 1922 statue, the original, uh, that was placed in the Utah Capitol Rotunda. 
And um, this was to us a, one of those odd moments. Um, what happened in 1922 with the unveiling of this of this plaster cast uh, was that Dolan spoke about not Massasoit, but Washaki. And he implored the, the audience gathered there to honor Massasoit um, to start raising money so that they could actually buy the, a, a um, cast of Washaki, which would be more fitting for the Capitol Rotunda in Utah. Dolan saw this kind of parallel between Massasoit and Washaki. Um, in the book, we describe how Dolan makes this really um, stark parallel or striking parallel um, between what he calls the, the pioneers of the Great Salt Lake Valley and the Pilgrim Fathers, right? And Washaki and Massasoit were, were peacemakers for this moment. Um, so this is a, a way, strangely, of... Um, of bringing that story of peaceful colonization into another historical context, into the, um, Utah's own colonial history, um, kind of helping that um, help to reconfigure that story of really extraordinary violence in Utah into one that parallels the one um, promoted by the improved order of Redmond in New England, which was peaceful colonization. Um, but the statue in the Utah Capitol Rotunda, um, it didn't, kind of rest in peace there in the center. There was a quite a controversy um, over its placement there. Some, especially politicians and some um, figures of power in Utah, believed that Massasoit did not belong in the, the rotunda, um, both because um, it was a, <laughs> not um, a local, Right, and also because um, a native individual was taking the place, literally, of um, of someone who they believed had more of a role in the foundations of Utah. Right, um, some miners or um, LDS pioneers. So there were some who really pushed for <laughs> the removal to kind of push uh, the statue outside. Um, which they claimed was a, a more fitting environment for a native statue anyway. Um, but then there were others who had come to see Ma the Massasoit statue as well, honoring Cyrus Dolan as a, kind of a local artist who made you know, an international reputation. Um, and they may have seen like that parallel that, um, that Dolan was hoping to make, right, between um, the kind of peacemaker role that Massasoit played in New England and the peacemaker role of, of native people in Utah. Um, and people had, had uh, their senior proms <laughs> in the, the Capitol Rotunda and for generations had kind of worked the statue of Massasoit into their, um, into their themes for their balls. So there was a lot of personal <laughs> um, investment in, in that as well. Um, but this controversy played out really publicly in the newspapers in the 1950s. And um, there, were, there were many instances in which newspapers would publish uh, quite racist and demeaning letters supposedly written by Native people, right? This kind of um, Indian jargon voice to, to make a claim for why the statue belonged in the rotunda. But we did find one letter 
that was published. It was clearly by a native author. It was just signed by a native author um, who claimed that uh, the statue did belong in the rotunda because that would honor the um, the kind of the long historical relationship between native people and um, their role in the LDS faith. That is, um, they have common origins. The Book of Mormon claims that Native Americans have uh, common origins with Israelites, right? Um, and so they have this possibility of redemption um, when they convert to Mormonism. And part of the um, well, part of the the letter writer's intent was to to defend that portion or that part of LDS faith um, and make a place for Native people in the faith, right? By um, really defending the place of Massasoit in the, the Capitol Rotunda. And I'm just turning our attention to to Kansas City for a moment. Uh, it, this the, the placement of the statue there, again, has to do with the unleashing of the statues into, into a, a market in fine arts that, that is attached to the plaster cast, ultimately. So in Kansas City, a, an important real estate developer by the name of Jesse Clyde Nichols is the person who purchased the Massasoit uh, reproduction. And he placed it in his real estate development country club plaza in Kansas city, which is this very upscale um, neighborhood in, in Kansas city. And it is a place that first of all, he had this vision of reproducing Segovia, Spain. So it's the architecture of this place is really quite fascinating as well. He had a vision of public art and there's statuary that is, is, just scattered throughout this whole neighborhood. And so what we what we see here is this really fascinating combination of real estate development, a fascination with public art and civic obligation, and shopping. So here comes Massasoit as uh, one of the things, one of the statues that's going to adorn the Country Club Plaza neighborhood for Jesse Clyde Nichols to combine all of these kinds of um, ideals that he has. So one of the things, there's a couple of of well, one very quite amusing letter that that came to uh, Nichols that we found in the archives right after the the unveiling. Uh, well, actually, excuse me, not after the unveiling, but after they decided to move the statue to another location in 1993, and the the person knew that this was Massasoit from Massachusetts, and the question is, what is it doing here in Kansas City? Which, of course, was the original question that fueled the book. So uh, his answer, he he responded, and his answer was, "There's no reason why he should be here except to symbolize friendship." So there's this boiling down of the message that we have here in Kansas City that's that's quite interesting. Uh, but there's also pushback. So we found a fascinating letter, a uh, letter to the editor after the original dedication, and it's the, the caption for the letter is what's left out. And in this letter writer's mind that this this is glossing over this complicated story that they that they know about because it's the it's the 1970s and in, it's a moment of Indian activism and drawing attention to Indian Indian causes and a much more complicated Indian history than uh, many people wanted to have at the time. So this letter is detailed. It talks about the epidemics that preceded the arrival of the English in 16 teens. It talks about wars such as King Philip's 
War in 1676-77, which led to the death of so many Native peoples and, and much destruction throughout the region. It talks about land theft and what they call the rape of Native culture, language, and spirituality, and the undermining of in- Indigenous sovereignty. So it's not everybody that's going to buy this message of peaceful encounter and friendship and civic pride that is meant to be signified in this in this statue. So there's 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 the case that there are people that this antiseptic national narrative is just not going to fly with everybody. Can you also briefly discuss the casts installed in uh, Illinois, Washington, and Utah, addressing the controversies over belonging and the myriad consequences of monumental mobility? Well, I'll just quickly take up the story of Chicago. It's just, it, it's a fascinating story, really. At least it is to us, and we hope it is to our readers as well. So that that particular installation parallels the Kansas City installation in some really interesting ways. And it took us some detective work for us to figure out what the deal was and, and how this particular statue ended up in, of all places, the Evergreen Plaza Shopping Center in suburban Chicago. It turns out, and we found this actually in the archives, just in a list of names. And I recognized this name that was attached to Chicago. It was Arthur Rubloff. I I lived in Chicago for nine years. I knew that he was a very well-known real estate developer in Chicago. So he has the same kind of background that that, uh, Jesse Clyde Nichols has. So he, at the same moment, or around the same moment, that Nichols is purchasing the statue for Kansas City, purchased one for himself. And, you know, we kind of think of these guys as maybe even in competition with each other as regional real estate developers with fancying themselves as, as aficionados of art. So he purchases the Massasoit to join a very large, uh, actually, collection of bronzes that he had installed in the shopping center there. And so here again, we see the commercial elements of the statue, the fine art turned to the commercial purposes of making the, the, the shopping, we imagine they're trying to make the shopping experience enjoyable to prolong people's visits in the area. So they're going to buy things, right? So we see the commercial allure attached to the fine arts uh, aspirations of these of these folks who fancy themselves to be um, some you know, people who can appreciate fine art. <laughs> and uh, when well, when I was doing research in Kansas City in the archives there, and found mention of the kind of the origins of that particular reproduction from a New Mexico. Um, dealer. I also found that I think at least five, at least four others, excuse me, um, reproductions were also sent around the country, right? So one of those went to that mall um, (laughs) in suburban Chicago. Another went to Spokane, Washington. And this was an interesting one because it's not there anymore and we don't know where it is now, Um, but it kind of pops up in, in records for a brief moment and then disappears um, into the, the private art market again, right? So this is one where we don't know where it is exactly, where that one is now. But um, during its tenure in Spokane, it was donated um, as perhaps a long-term loan, it's a little unclear, but it was donated to um, a Native American art museum um, that was really focused on Northwest Native art in Spokane, Washington. And um, it was, it was, dedicated in 1979 and it was sold and um, well, it was decommissioned or or deaccessioned, excuse me, and sold in the early 1990s because 
of a, the question of fit, right? What was the statue created by a Utah sculptor of a um, Massachusetts um, native man? What was it doing in a Spokane um, Museum to Native Art? So that just emerges briefly and then goes back kind of under the surface of um, in terms of public records. Um, and in Utah, um, it's fascinating, right? We have the, the original plaster cast, uh, which was in the Capitol Rotunda in, um, in Salt Lake City. It was cast in bronze, um, one of those um, kind of a, a wealthy individual who was really interested in making sure that Massasoit was removed from uh, the rotunda. He donated the money to have the, the plaster cast um, reproduced in bronze and then placed outside. Um, and so there is still this uh, beautiful bronze reproduction of Massasoit outside of the Utah State Capitol. It was initially in 1959 uh, placed at really the the front lawn, right? You kind of come up the Capitol um, Boulevard up this hill and the statue is really the first thing you see. And then the, the Capitol Rotunda is in the background, right? It's a beautiful central placement. Um, although in 1990, uh, I believe it was, I believe it was the, the late 90s, uh, the statue was uh, moved to the, the South Lawn. Um, but that um, that was one of um, several reproductions, right? This casting in bronze that was placed in the on the lawn. Um, the original plaster cast ended up in the Springville Art Museum, and this is uh, dedicated to a museum dedicated to Utah artists, and so it features many of of Dolan's sculptures um, in miniature. And this is one of the the only kind of large heroic size statues that they have, but it is, it's a plaster cast and it has, it's, it's seen some things and it's falling apart and the, uh, the maintenance of it is, is quite um, involved, right? So we have that original there in the, the art museum acting as a, you know, a representative of local artwork. And then uh, the reproduction on the South lawn of the Salt Lake city um, Capitol building. Um, one went to Spokane, one went to uh, Kansas City, and then another went to Provo, Utah. It was it was given as a gift to the Brigham Young University Art Museum, um, and this was part of the kind of complicated <laughs> art fraud deal, uh, where the um, the reproductions were really taken from. Brigham Young University's um, holdings and sold. And as kind of payment uh, for making those castings, they would receive a free bronze cast. And so there's this bronze cast of Massasoit now on the Brigham Young University campus. Um, And this stirred a a great deal of controversy on campus, mostly from um, students who were questioning its its belonging, right? They were what we found in student yearbooks um, and in uh, newsletters and in memories was that well, people people noted the um, the uniqueness of the statue. It would become a uh, a meeting place. We'll meet you at the Naked Indian is something that we heard a lot in in uh, memories of BYU uh, grads. Um, but also there was a controversy about 
its well, it's state, state of undress. And BYU has a dress code, and students are to adhere to certain standards, right? They uh, men have to keep their hair cut short. Um, there shouldn't be kind of exposing of the chest or arms or legs, right? So uh, this statue really breaks student code contact, right? And so um, that became the, the source of some kind of jovial controversy. <laughs> um, but really what's, what's at the heart of that is some questions about fit, right? What is that statue doing there? And um, how um, the, the kind of commercial art market set up this kind of situation where people were really searching about searching within themselves about their own play stories and whether um, that statue can come to, um, um, I guess, help them to articulate their own values, whether it be um, kind of one of peaceful colonization or friendship or um, helping others in need. What were the uh, six questions that you posed to passerby in each as a Soviet uh, monument locale? And what were patterns and responses, particularly for local and national narr- narratives of this history in quotes? Uh, so, yes, Lisa has touched a little bit on that just now, but uh, let me just start by saying that the, why did we ask questions of people? It, that really is the further we got into this project, the more we wanted to know about how people engage or don't engage with monuments. Um, what meaning do people make of monuments? I mean, we are all confronted with monuments and plaques and statues and names even, Uh every day. And you know, people don't necessarily actually pause to think or look or reflect or even read plaques when they pass by these monuments to, to really engage with the meanings that were intended by those who conceived of the monuments, who planned them, who designed them, who made them, who installed them. And so that was the question that really, con- that really started to consume us at a certain point. And so we just posed a, a list of six very basic questions and we went to each of the, the known locations of the monuments and we just talked with passersby. So the questions were, where are you from? Have you noticed this statue? Does it make you think of history? And if so, what does it make you think of? Who is depicted and why? What do you think it's doing here? And how do you think it fits here? So you can see that those questions are really tooled around what's the person's location, literally, where are they from? Uh, would they have a lot of familiarity with this monument that, you know, you'd hope that that would lead them to know something about it? Uh, and of course, we were consumed with the idea of mobility and the narratives that are attached to monuments when they move and what people, what meaning people make of them. So Lisa outlined some of the responses, especially in Utah just now. I would say just kind of in general, what most people, if they thought about the monument, and all most of them thought about a generic Indian, and really the idea of peaceful encounter is something that's very common, it seems. So the idea of Thanksgiving even did move with these monuments in a very generic way. Uh, Almost very few people knew that it was Massasoit, except in Plymouth, where a larger number did of both locals and people who came from elsewhere. And one of the interesting things that happened in two places, and I'll just name one more locale, um, part of of the story we think of is the story of micro-mobility. So I'll go back to the Evergreen Plaza for a moment. In the 1980s, that 
collection of statuary was donated by Rubloff to the Art Institute of Chicago, which deaccessed most of the pieces, including Massasoit. And we lost track of that statue for a very, very long time. And then I think it was maybe in the very last stretch of our research, Lisa, right, that that you found it on the internet and you found it in Dayton, Ohio, in the Art Institute there. So we, we have that location as well. So in that location and in Kansas City, both of those places, we had interviews with people who were from Massachusetts and both of them knew what that statue was because they were from Massachusetts. So, and they both had kind of amusing responses in, in Dayton, Ohio, uh, the man said, yeah, it's Massasoit. I know who that is. Man, you'd freeze to death if you dressed like that in Massachusetts. <laughs> so that, w- that was great. Um, and, and the woman in Kansas City said, yeah, that's Massasoit. I'm just wondering, what's it doing here? Which is, of course, was exactly our questions. She said, I, I don't know if people understand that this is related to Massachusetts, but I wish they would. So there was that that kind of impulse to really connect there that was really interesting to us. So in Plymouth, uh, one of the things that's interesting there and really important, we think, and something that we talk about quite 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 a bit, is that there are actually now competing plaques attached to the Massasoit Monument. And uh, so there's the original plaque from the, the unveiling in 1921 of the Improved Order of Redmen, and then in the 1990s there is a new there's a new plaque 1998 following protests that occurred at the monument. And, and this is a, this is a plaque that unabashedly presents in a, a native Wampanoag, but more broadly generic native American perspective on what was unleashed at this particular moment of encounter that's signified in the Massasoit monument. So it talks about dispossession, disease, epidemics, and genocide in no uncertain terms. And so there, what we found is that when people took time to read that plaque alongside the other one and to think about the monument, it really made them think about this history in a much more complicated way. They were willing to entertain that there were different versions of what had happened here. And I mean, that was both locals and people who were visitors. Of course, this really is a tourist place. So we've talked to people from all over the place. Uh, We talked to one couple who the, the, the male was, um, of Armenian descent, and he connected that to the Armenian genocide. So it really caused them to really reflect on this history if they took the time to read the plaques. And as we argue, then people take that narrative with them. So uh, it, it just gave us, I guess, a little bit of hope that it's possible to complicate historical narratives with the with a, you know, a, a complexity of narration about what they might mean. Of course, we're at a moment about history and memory and monuments uh, that's really fraught and very controversial. And people are thinking a lot about what monuments to the Confederacy and to white supremacy really mean and what we ought to do with them. So well, one of the things that we want to talk about is the fact that that monuments like this, which you can attach to uh, settler colonialism, what can they do to help us make a more complicated narrative of the nation as well? How did in- indigenous interventions, such as the 1998 Day of Mourning plaque in Plymouth, further reshape these narratives? And why did the 1997 inaugural Day of Mourning protests alter narration, programming, and viewing experiences at the Plymouth Plantation site and Wampanoag home site, as well as in that PBS series, Colonial House? 
Okay, so there's a lot going on here, right? So the, the, the initial day of mourning actually occurred in 1970 at this moment of, of Indian activism. And this was an incredibly important event, I would argue, in, in American Indian uh, history in general, where uh, there's a story of, of uh, an, a Native man um, who was invited to give a speech at the the Thanksgiving celebration that they were going to have at Plymouth Plantation. And he had some very biting criticisms to make of English colonialism that he wanted to deliver at, at this event. And he was promptly uninvited. And so um, Frank James went to the statue of Massasoit on Coles Hill, and he delivered the speech to, as far as we can tell, about a dozen people. But this started an event in motion that has been held ever since on Thanksgiving Day, an alternative to the Thanksgiving celebration that are so concentrated in not just in Plymouth, but then, of course, throughout the nation as, as a an annual celebration, possibly, you know, maybe the, the most important holiday in, in the U.S., right? So uh, those those protests happen every year, but this plaque in that was installed in 1998 after, after what was basically a melee in the 1997 protests really created a moment that, that fixes something in place that people can take up and engage with in really important ways or not, right? So the, the question of engagement is something that's really important to us. So this initial day of mourning in 1970 prompted a lot of things, including the annual protest, but also the development of what is now called the Wampanoag Indian Program and the Wampanoag Homesite at Plymouth Plantation, which is a living history museum in Plymouth that's very well known. Uh, in the words of, of a longtime, the longtime director of the program there, Linda Coombs, who's Wampanoag, that, that just flipped the whole script on the, the story of Plymouth and national origins to have this programming there, to have indigenous people involved in uh, programming at the plantation and being a part of the, the living museum itself. So this creates the opportunity for indigenous people to have deep and meaningful uh, involvement in the shaping of the narrative of Plymouth and what it has to do with national origins. And that actually continues to develop in really interesting ways. We had incredible experiences working with Dryas Coombs, who is the director of the program there now, about how it is that Indigenous involvement at Plymouth Plantation continues to deepen and and, and create opportunities to engage with the public and, and present a much more complicated narrative that that portrays Indigenous perspectives. So there's that. It's ongoing. Uh, one of the things we we took up is what has become a, a rather obscure PBS reality series, Colonial House, which is really meant to to reenact the settlement of Plymouth. In it's done in in colonial, uh, in, excuse me, in coastal Maine in the early two thousands, and it's the eight part series that I'm just kind of obsessed with. So this series actually also included staged encounters between colonists and native people. It involved in uh, working with the staff at Plymouth Plantation, including Indigenous peoples. And so these Indigenous encounters were highlighted in the series. One of the things I want to say about both both Colonial House and Plymouth Plantation is that both of them use first-person narration, which creates the, uh, the ability of people, Indigenous people, to convey perspectives from now and connect them to the past so that they can deepen people's involvement in thinking about interpretations in history. So uh, there's this this really amazing encounter in one of the episodes that is it's called the reckoning, 
where Indigenous people confront these po- these folks who are staging as colonists in, in colonial house. And it is all about making the point that colonialism was a disaster for Native people and that uh, Thanksgiving is not this happy event that people should be celebrating, but uh, instead there's this long history of 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 disease and epidemics, of wars, of violence, of conflict, of dispossession that continues into the present. So there's the opportunity to really remake this needs narratives. And uh, we actually make the argument in the book that we, we think of as 1970, this initial day of mourning is kind of ground zero of indigenous interpretations of this history that can no longer be ignored. And uh, that the demands of indigenous public intellectuals and public historians that this history did not begin in 1620. And that is one of the most significant points that we want to make in this book. So can you clarify what happened though in 1997 and 1998, the significance of it in your, in your book? Um, yeah, so that that is in 1997 in the protests around the Day of Mourning, there was conflict between the protesters and other people. There was what we in the in the newspaper accounts they call it a melee. So there's there's violence and police come in and they arrest protested protesters. And there was this big complex set of negotiations between indigenous people and the basically the 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 town council in Plymouth and officials and lawyers and police officers in which what they decide to do is there's a list of demands that's made by the United uh, Native American, American Indians of New England, this activist group that came out of 1970 that is about trying to make a more complex narrative possible. It's about education um, of natives and non-natives about this history. It's about scholarships and it's about, erecting this uh, plaque that explains indigenous perspectives on Massasoit and colonialism, as well as another plaque that was erected in the um, post office square up the hill. That was a monument to Medicom who was uh, the indigenous leader of King Philip's war. So those things happened in 1998, but they're connected to the 1970 protests originally. So it's the plaque that actually gets installed in 1998 as a result of the 1997 events. I see. So how did uh, Massasoit refashion Plymouth as a tourist destination, the statue? And what happens to the memorial and consumerist and non-consumerist function of Massasoit when separated from Plymouth contexts and sold in retail stores or on eBay? Uh, In your response, uh, Please try, if possible, to address any number of issues like the history of fundraising efforts for Massasoit, uh, Wampanoag Landscape Memorials, the commemorative impulses, the uh, tercentenary um, celebrations, including those performances, um, varieties of encounters and narratives during the heritage tours, like uh, Tim Turner's tour, as well as uh, small-scale Massasoit souvenirs. So any one of those issues are all... certain chunk of them or however you want to respond. Okay. Well, Massasoit, the statue certainly had a role in helping Plymouth to refashion itself into a tourist destination and one that, that celebrated its colonial past. Um, And it, it had, it played this role by um, helping to establish sort of this, um, an entire experience for a tourist um, of a, a sort of a fantasy that you're walking through this hallowed grounds, the origins of the nation. Um, this was accomplished in a, a number of ways. So 
first I'll address the fundraising efforts, which I think helped to create the story of, of uh, national origins attached to the statue. So the improved order of red men, um, it, it was initially the Massachusetts chapter or, or uh, tribe that uh, started the fundraising for the statue. And uh, they started their fundraising in, um, I believe it was about 1913. And they'd there's, their fundraising really stalled. Um, part of the reason is because just during World War One, right, more people were sending their um, their money toward the war effort and less toward memorials, right? Um, but after the end of World War One, to kind of kickstart um, the the next accelerated phase of fundraising, the Improved Order of Red Men, the National Office, um, took up this fundraising as um, as an an attempt to really, um, well, cement the role of the Improved Order of Redmen as an organization um, in the kind of the patriotic foundations of the nation, right? That they had a, um, they celebrate the the nation um, as kind of super patriots. And they also helped to promote the story of Massasoit as a national figure, right? So um, it no longer maybe mattered as much to the, the, local context and particularly the kind of political um, historical context of 1620s um, kind of New England coast and more in this, um, I would say, English colonist centered story of um, the survival of the Plymouth colony and therefore the establishment of the nation. So they um, they did this in um, newsletters, um, in books, and they also sold these commemorative coins that featured um, a, an early Dolan cast of the statue um, in order to raise money. So already people were, um, were giving money and getting these these little coins with the likeness of Massasoit. Um, so there's this kind of early transaction over his image um, in building this patriotic story of uh, the founding of the nation. So that fundraising effort um, is it's separate, right? But it, it does help to establish this um, the national importance of Plymouth. Um, and locally, Plymouth found a way to profit from this mythic story of national origins and the first Thanksgiving as well. Um, so at the, at the turn of the 20th century, Plymouth, like many other New England towns at this time, was an aging seaport um, and mill town that was in decline. But there were these new trends developing in tourism um, for a number of different reasons. Um, you know, auto uh, tourism was becoming more popular. So people were starting to, to travel and kind of see the nation. Um, and one of those trends, um, particular to New England, was this renewed interest, or I guess a new interest in colonial history, um, especially sort of a, a fantasy of um, simpler better times in uh, the colonial past. And Plymouth boosters really um, jumped on this, right? It's an opportunity to sell the town as a colonial settlement. Um, And so they needed to sort of remake it in order to freeze it in the 17th century and offer tourists a a fantasy of visiting the very place where the nation began and where the very first Thanksgiving took place. And so, um, the town remade itself through um, state grants and local fundraising into this tourist fantasy. So they removed docks 
and kind of restored the, the rocky shoreline so you could really see you know, the Plymouth Rock, right? And, and imagine people stepping off of a, um, of a dinghy onto, the, onto that shore. Uh, they removed the sheds and the factory buildings um, and replaced them with reconstructions of colonial homes, right? So this was um, an important way in which they could establish that very space as, a, as an English colonial village of Plymouth rather than um, you know, the, um, the seaport village um, of Plymouth in the 19th century, which was really actually full of Italian immigrants, or um, a 16th century Patuxet Wampanoag village. Um, and so they sort of reconstructed the, um, the sh- shoreline. So it was this memorial sort of fantasy where visitors could essentially walk through this, the past. Um, They also planned the summer of events to commemorate the 300-year anniversary of the landing in 1920 and 1921. Um, And the events went into 1922 as well. Uh, So the programming included a historical pageant that featured the Massasoit um, in this scene in which he negotiates for peace. Um, But more than anything, this tercentennial brought tourist dollars to the town, right? And it showed that um, this kind of feel-good colonial history could draw, could, could draw a lot of people. And it was an incredible moneymaker. And so this is the setting for the statue when it was installed and then dedicated in 1922, um, which helped to um, reinforce those narratives about the, the nation um, and its peaceful origins in visitors' minds. And naturally, then there's this connection um, drawn in visitors' minds between Massasoit and his um, and his choices and his role in his life there and the nation's origins. So tourist interaction um, on Coal Hill, we see it as um, serving this kind of consumerist function, right? People are, um, tourists are going to see the sites, the historical sites, right? But they're, they're spending money there, right? This is exactly what uh, Plymouth um, designed its waterfront to do. Right, to to memorialize, but also to bring in tourist dollars. So this is at its heart a consumer sort of transaction. And along with that, we found other um, ways in which history was kind of kind of commodified, and memorialization of the Massasoit was also made into a, a kind of a commercial uh, function. Um, so specifically, we found all of these commercial and free history tours on the Plymouth waterfront during our research. And they all, I believe, make a stop at Massasoit statue. And we, as good tourists, um, I think over a couple of summers, we took the tours, right? So we um, went on the the most popular tour, which is led by, well, it's a pilgrim-centered tour, and it's led by a costumed interpreter who took pains to insist, right, that the pilgrims never stole native land. And, um, to our horror, he made light of uh, the violence inherent in the colonial encounter at Plymouth. Um, but there are other alternatives as well. Um, another private tour that we found and loved is the Native Plymouth Tours, which is led by Tim Turner. And this tour helped us to reimagine the waterfront, not as this kind of a frozen moment in the 17th century or a fantasy of what it was like, but as Patuxet, right? The indigenous village that predated um, the renaming of Plymouth. And it was a place of spiritual, cultural, 
and memorial vitality, right? Where Wampanoag residents, they collected their resources, they lived their lives, they buried um, their dead, and they told their stories, right? They kept their histories there. So in this tour, Tim Turner, he uses the statue, Massasoit, to discuss the political circumstances of the, the mutual defense agreement, as he calls it. And he brings discussion of colonialism to the present, right? It's not something that's kind of frozen in the past. Um, by spending a lot of time talking about the Day of Mourning plaque, making sure people actually read it, um, but also helping us to kind of reimagine the landscape, um, not as it's been um, remade for the tourist eye, but as, um, you know, a you can see the, the evidence of a, an ancient pathway through um, the trees, or you can see um, in the slope of the spring where, uh, where the... Uh, fish uh, were caught um, where, you know, these where fresh water was obtained, right. It was an important um, valuable resource for the village. So he was able to kind of help us to, to reimagine Plymouth. And this at its heart was not really um, a, a commercial transaction, right. This was um, he was not profiting beyond just paying for his time. He was not profiting off of the statue or off of um the memorialization of um, of a certain historical narrative, right? So this count stands in, I think, um, in distinction um, to what we saw elsewhere in Plymouth. So Tim Turner is really working against the the memorial tide. We should say um, we visited a number of other Plymouths. Plymouth tourist destinations, and we found images of the statue and Bosomequin um, were readily available in shops and on store decor. And we found it um, in wallpaper outside of bathrooms in one restaurant, um, right? So there's lots of ways in which um, people in Plymouth make profit off the story of a peaceful encounter and off the statue and its um, connection to or suppose a connection to national origins. So this kind of great commercial <laughs> consumerist pot that we found in Plymouth um, also prompted us to, to question um, what it means to, for people to buy this kind of figurine of Massasoit and display it in their home or in their office um, or buy a, a little charm for a bracelet or uh, buy a postcard uh, featuring, you know, a, I think we found some really odd like Christmas cards featuring a very stern face of Massasoit. Right. And we're kind of wondering like, what is, what does this mean to people when it's taken outside of Plymouth, right. Outside of this context. And um, interestingly, I think the statue that helped to make Plymouth a particular destination, right. A place that has to be visited in order to experience its, its nature is this hallowed ground of the nation's origins. Um, it also made the place and history kind of irrelevant, to the tourist consumer, um, because these souvenirs, whether, whether, you know, you buy a, a kitschy charm or a postcard, um, the souvenir itself becomes the memorial. And it's not a memorial of a, of a place-based history necessarily, but it's a memorial of a personal tourist experience. It's not public history. So in a way we found that Massasoit could sell a lot, right? Massasoit could be used to sell a place, uh, to sell a historical narrative. Um, but as 
it was kind of commodified and sold on eBay, right, or, or elsewhere, um, it meant, I guess, more and less. It meant more in personal experiences and um, less in kind of collective um, history knowledge. How have uh, Wampanoag adults, elders, and children crafted a new historical consciousness around the Plymouth 400th anniversary? And what do such, uh, what do such undertakings demand of the viewers? Well, that's, that's something that we're, we're really um, invested in. I just want to just actually back up for a second and, and talk a little bit about the Massasoit souvenirs and go back to the beginning of, of our conversation when we talked about eBay and the fact that Massasoit is all over eBay. I haven't looked recently, but at any given moment, you can find 11-inch replicas of Massasoit for sale by auction for between $1,000 and $3,000. So some of these images are are very valuable to people in ways that we're intrigued with but didn't go very far into because where do you where do you stop telling this story of mobility so in any event that how uh, Wampanoag elders and children are thinking about the historical consciousness and recrafting it in the in the present this is a really incredible moment of course we're looking at next year the 400th anniversary of the the arrival of the pilgrims and so we have another big anniversary coming up and commemorative activities have been ongoing for a long time already. So there's something called Plymouth 2020 Incorporated that is all about trying to figure out how to commemorate this, this anniversary. And one of the things that happened is that the committee for this, for this, uh, and this venture included indigenous people from the beginning, in particular, a really important public intellectual, Linda Coombs, who I mentioned earlier was on the committee originally and now she's not but uh, a relative of hers Paula Peters is on that committee as well and one of, in one of our conversations with Linda it was kind of hilarious we were like wow that's that's interesting that you're on the committee she said well you know they really don't want to go back to what they did in for the 300th anniversary have a whole nother Frank James thing referencing the day of mourning so in other words this is a different historical moment and there's the realization of at least some people that for this big commemoration, you need to have indigenous involvement given how our world looks right now. So there is indigenous involvement. And I'll just mention some of the things that are underway in particular, the work of Paula Peters, which is so incredible. Uh, she's Wampanoag, uh, Matchpin Wampanoag. And she's a, she, among the many things she does, she's a, she's an historian. She's worked with Plymouth Plantation. Uh, she also has her, her own production company and she is hard at work with other people and involving lots of indigenous people of all ages in what they're calling our story, 400 years of Wampanoag history, which is both a traveling exhibit that is expanding all the time. There's content that's being included, developed and included all the time. And it travels to various locations throughout new England. Uh, and it's also, it has a presence on the website for the commemoration of the 400th commemoration. So the first installment of that was called captured 1614. And this is one of the pieces that, that we argue helps, Wampanoag people insist on a different timeline for histories of encounter in in Plymouth and elsewhere. And this is a this is a really compelling video where basically what she did was she she gathered up a group of indigenous people, Wampanoag people, and told them what happened in 1614 when this English uh, Captain Thomas Hunt comes and he seizes 27 
Native men and boys and enslaves them and takes them away. And she has them reenact what that must have felt like. And it's this really emotional video where people think about the loss of fathers, brothers, sons, and imagine what the impact of that experience had to be for people, real live people at that moment. And uh, she tells a story, told us a story about watching people watch the video at the Pilgrim Hall Museum when it was installed there. And she told us people would draw chairs and just watch it over and over and over again. And one person she talked to uh, about the fact that she was the filmmaker and he just said, please keep doing this important work. So they're having an impact with these, these stories that are so native centered. Uh, One of the most recent installments is called The Great Dying, which is about the 1616-1619 epidemic that depopulated so much of this area, 30 miles inland, that helped facilitate English invasion. And, And so there's more installments happening all the time. So as we argue... All of these things decentered 1620 as a moment of origins, and it demands a more complex history, one that includes indigenous voices. So as we as we end in our in our epilogue to the book, why not start in 1614 or 1616 or 1970 and take a look around and see what you see from multiple perspectives? That's one of the things that we hope that this book will accomplish is to get people to think about history in that way. And I would add that, you know, this is those dates we, we pick up on because they're about the story of origins. You could go back thousands of years. And that's a really important point to make that, that an indigenous history is there for hundreds and hundreds of years prior to 1620. And if you think about origins that way, it's a completely different story. That's right. And our story we found to be um, remarkable in so many ways. Right. Um, but one of the, things that I found so unique in the exhibit was that um, there were <laughs> there were always white papers attached um, with very carefully documented research, right? So this was um, fact-based, very careful historical research um, presented for, um, for non-Native people so that they could understand the history of their, of their home, right? And um, in, as such, it made some demands on the viewers, right? It was, um, these are not, you know, happy stories. Uh, these are challenging stories of enslavement, of epidemics, right? Um, but also survival. And so the viewers who, who see our story, the exhibition, um, they have to really rethink narratives that they had accepted and not questioned, right? Especially those narratives that just no longer make sense, right? If you really think about um, the story of the first Thanksgiving um, as it's kind of presented in in children's books, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't quite make sense in that story. Um, And so the exhibit is is challenging viewers to to rethink received um, stories um, and to really consider what the evidence, the historical evidence can tell us about, um, about New England's history. And that means seeing the violence and the ongoing mechanisms of colonialism around us, right? It, it means acknowledging that there are other perspectives on the past. And those perspectives can't be ignored if we're to have a, a, a truly whole and complete Um, knowledge of our shared history. If I could add just one last thing, one of the videos that's part of the series that I just mentioned is called The Message Runner. And it is a video that 
is a, it shows a, a young uh, Wampanoag man running from village to village, all with the original Wampanoag uh, names, del- delivering messages. And finally, he gets to the last vi- village, uh, and he pulls out of a buckskin, a buckskin bag a smartphone. And the message on this smartphone is the message that we want people to take away, which is, we are still here. So I have a, a final question for both of you. What's next uh, for both of you? Are you uh, are, uh, are you going on vacation? Are you working on other projects? Uh, so what's going on? <laughs> Professor Blee, you can go first, and then Professor O'Brien. Uh, well, uh, I'd say one thing is when we finished this book, we, we both said, oh, we've got to find another project to work on. We haven't done that yet, but I think we could <laughs> and we would love to do that. I'm working on two projects right now, actually. One is is an edited volume with Daniel Heath Justice, my colleague at the University of British Columbia, called Allotment Stories. And it is a cl- it's a collection of essays about land privatization for Indigenous people in a global context. And my contribution to that book is going to be a chapter on my grandmother's history at White Earth Reservation in Northwestern Minnesota. I'm White Earth Ojibwe. And so I'm telling the story about the land loss through allotment that happened there in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And then that's going to be my kind of jumping off point to do a family history or family centered history of White Earth uh, that is going to be read through some, some of her writings that she kept. And you know, I I've had such a, a hard time getting started on the next project because, well, typically history research is just a a lone sport, right? You just kind of go into the archives alone, you put together the the pieces alone. <laughs> um, but working collaboratively with Jeannie was so much fun that I kind of <laughs> don't want to go back to that <laughs> quite yet. Um, but I'm I'm starting to. Um, to dip into some other questions that have um, been with me for a while um, about um, memorialization, especially uh, trees that um, have become memorials of treaty sites or for treaties, and what happens when those trees deteriorate and die as living things do? Um, what happens in uh, kind of settler memory? What happens in indigenous memory um, around those trees? So that's one thing I'm, I'm thinking about, how we can maybe bring together um, a uh, environmental history with memory studies. And another is um, turning back to the Pacific Northwest, which is my a region of interest in the 19th and 20th century. Um, I'm, I'm interested in how, how race-based kind of mob violence, vigilante violence, um, was reported in uh, newspapers, how it was then, um, I guess, hidden or reframed in community histories and uh, the results of those acts of um, reporting and forgetting in in later 20th century um, kind of Northwest identity formation and recent efforts at um, sort of a a truth and reconciliation or um, commemorating those events of um, race-based mob violence. 